Amen. This morning, we begin a study in the book that has proved to be the most influential and transformational book in all the Bible. The Apostle Paul's letter to the Christians who lived in Rome. It was the capital of the known world at the time. And the church in every generation has acknowledged the importance of this letter to the Romans, not the least at the time of the Reformation. Martin Luther, who we sang, A Mighty Fortress is His God, is Our God, Martin Luther wrote that song. He called Romans really the chief part of the New Testament and truly the purest gospel. He continued, it is worthy not only that every Christian should know it word for word by heart, but also that he should occupy himself with it every day as the daily bread of the soul. And the reformer John Calvin wrote in a similar vein, declaring that if we have gained a true understanding of this epistle, we have an open door to all the most profound treasures of Scripture. And the same appreciation of Romans was expressed by the, the British reformers. William Tyndale is called the, the father of early Bible English translators. And in fact, Tyndale lost his life. He was strangled and burned at the stake for translating the Bible into English. And in his prologue to the book of Romans, he said, Romans is the principal and most excellent part of the New Testament. And most pure euangelion. That's the word we translate good news or gospel. That is to say glad tidings and also a light and a way in, unto, and a way in unto the whole scripture. He went on to urge his readers to learn it by heart. For he assured them the more it is studied, the easier it is. The more it is chewed, the pleasanter it is. The book of Romans, it has been said, rightfully said, is, has played the most influential part in every great revival and every great awakening in Christian history. In fact, several notable and influential leaders have testified in different countries and different centuries to the impact that Romans has made on their own lives. Oftentimes, the study of the book of Romans was the means to their conversion in receiving Christ. I want to mention just three of those this morning that are in, in your outline. Aurelius Augustinus. Uh, we know him as Augustine of Hippo. He was destined to become the greatest Latin father of the early church. He was born in a small town in what is now Algeria. And during his turbulent youth, he was both a slave to his sexual passions, but he was also the object of his mother Monica's prayers. Now, as a teacher of literature and rhetoric, he moved he started out in Carthage, he moved to Rome, and then to Milan, Italy, where he became under the influence of the bishop called Ambrose, his preaching. And it was there during the summer of the year 386, when he was 32 years old, that he went out into a garden, and he was seeking solitude. And he wrote this in his confessions. The tumult of my heart took me out into the garden, where no one could interfere with the burning struggle within myself in which I was engaged. I was twisting and turning in chains. I threw myself down somehow under a fig tree and let my tears flow freely. Suddenly, I heard a voice from a nearby house chanting as if it might be a boy or a girl, saying and repeating over and over again, pick up and read, pick up and read. I interpreted it 
solely as a divine command to me to open the book and read the first chapter I might find. So I hurried back to the place where I'd put down the book of the apostle when I got up. I seized it, opened it, and in silence read the first passage on which my eye lit. Not in riots and drunken parties, not in eroticism and indecencies, not in strife and rivalry, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in its lust. You'll recognize that as Romans chapter 13, verses 13 and 14. He goes on, I neither wished nor needed to read any further. At once with the last words of this sentence, it was as if a light of relief from all anxiety flooded into my heart. All the shadows of doubt were dispelled. In the year 1515, another professor, this one living in Germany, was overtaken by a similar spiritual crisis. Like everybody else who lived in medieval Christendom, Martin Luther had been brought up in the fear of God, in the fear of death, and in judgment in hell. Everybody was impressed with that. And because the surest way to gain heaven, it was thought, was to become a monk. So in 1505, at the age of 21, Martin Luther entered the Augustinian cluster at Erfurt, where he prayed and fasted sometimes for days on end. And he adopted other extreme austerities, including self-flagellation. Have you ever seen that, where people take the whip of cords and, and try to beat the sin out of their own selves? He said, I was a good monk. If ever a monk got into heaven by his monkery, it was I. I really like that word, <laughs> monkery. Luther probed every resource of contemporary Catholicism to assuage the anguish of a spirit alienated from God. But nothing pacified his tormented conscience until, having been appointed professor of Bible at Wittenberg University, he studied and expounded for his students first the Psalms and then the epistle to the Romans. At first, he confessed he was angry with God because it seemed to him that God was more of a terrifying judge than a merciful Savior. Where might he find a gracious God? What could Paul mean in Romans chapter 1, verse 17, where he said, the righteousness of God was revealed in the gospel? Luther tells us how his dilemma was resolved. He says, I greatly long to understand Paul's letter to the Romans, and nothing stood to the way but that one expression, the righteousness of God. Because I took it to mean that righteousness, whereby God is righteous and acts righteously, is punishing the unrighteous. Day and night I pondered until I grasped the truth that the righteousness of God is that righteous whereby, through grace and sheer mercy, he justifies us by faith. Thereupon I felt myself to be reborn and to have gone through open doors into paradise. The whole of scripture took on a new meaning and whereas before the righteousness of God had filled me with hate, now it became to me inexpressibly sweet in greater love. The passage of Paul became to me the gateway into heaven. And two years later after that conversion experience on October 31st, 1517, 17, does that sound familiar? 500 years ago, this October 31st, Luther nailed his 95 theses, he called them, 95 statements on the door of the Wittenberg Chapel. Now, don't think that was vandalism in those days. The, the door of the chapel was the community bulletin board. 
If people wanted to open a discussion, talk about anything, they nailed it to the door of the chapel. Luther thought, that well, this is just going to be, we're going to start talking about God's truths from the, the book of Romans. But due to the invention of the printing press in Germany a few years before, within two weeks of Luther posting his 95 theses on the door of the Wittenberg Chapel, his students had circulated in print. Within two weeks, it had reached all of Germany. And shortly after that, we would say it went viral. And it sparked the Protestant Reformation, the greatest revival in Christian history. Okay, one more. 200 years after that, it was Luther's own God-given insight into the truth of justification by grace through faith that led to a similar illumination in a man by the name of John Wesley. You heard that name? John and Charles Wesley? John's younger brother Charles had with some Oxford friends founded what they nicknamed the Holy Club. In November 1729, John joined it and became its acknowledged leader. Its members engaged in sacred studies, they engaged in self-examination, public and private religious exercise, philanthropic activities where they helped other people, apparently hoping to win salvation by such good works. And then in 1735, the brothers Wesley sailed to the colony called Georgia, here in the New World. And they were chaplains to the settlers and missionaries to the Indians. But two years later, they returned to England in profound disillusionment, which was mitigated only by their admiration and their, for the piety and faith of some Moravians who were on the voyage with them in return. Then on the 24th of May, 1738, during a Moravian meeting at Aldersgate Street, London, to which John Wesley says he went very unwillingly, he turned from self-confidence to faith in Christ. Somebody was reading from Luther's preface to Paul's letter to the Romans, and Wesley wrote in his journal, about a quarter before nine, while he was describing the change which God works in the hearts through faith in Christ, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for salvation, and an assurance was given me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, saved me from the law of sin and death. Now, if you were to ask me, apart from the Apostle Paul, if you were to ask me to name the five most influential men in Christian history, I just name perhaps those who are the top three. Augustine, Luther, and Wesley. At least they'd be in the, the top five. And by their own testimony, by their own experience, Paul's letter to the Romans was the most influential and transformational book in the Bible for them personally and for others. Paul's epistle to the Romans is still transforming lives. Just the way it transformed Martin Luther, just the way it transformed John Wesley, just the way that it transformed Augustine. The one scripture above all others that brought Luther out of mere religion into the joy of grace, salvation by grace through faith, was Romans 1.17. The just shall live by faith. In fact, that's our theme for our study in the book of Romans. Both the Protestant Reformation, the Wesleyan revival in England, were the fruit of this wonderful letter written by Paul, the Apostle Paul. He wrote it while he was in Corinth about the year A.D. 56, 56 years 
A.D. Now, according to Romans chapter 16, verse 1, this letter was carried to the Christians at Rome from Corinth to where Paul wrote it and Tertius penned it as Paul dictated it by one of the deaconesses at the church at Centria, a deaconess by the name of Phoebe, and carried this letter to Rome. But just think about this. Imagine this. You and I can read and study the same inspired letter that brought life and power to Luther, to Wesley, to the church at Rome. And the same Holy Spirit who taught them can teach us and we can experience revival in our hearts. If this message of this letter, if it grips us, if it grabs us like it has gripped men and women of the past in the centuries. Samuel Taylor Coleridge, the poet, said, I think the epistle to the Romans is the most profound work in existence. And John Knox, not the Scottish reformer, but the New Testament scholar said, Romans is unquestionably the most important theological work ever written. So here's our question this morning. How did this happen? How did this happen? How did a former Pharisee who hated Christianity, who breathed out murders against it, as he said himself in Romans chapter 9, verse 1, who participated in the first Christian martyrdom of Stephen, who persecuted the church violently, he said, unto death. How did that man come to write a 7,100-word letter, about 200 pages long in my Bible, that has changed the face of the world over and over again. How did he do that? Pastor John Piper has said that every Christian leader for 2,000 years has lit his smoldering wick in this flame for all these centuries. How did a man like that come to write such a thing? The answer is given in verse 1 of Romans chapter 1, if you'd like to turn there. Romans chapter 1, verse 1, page 1380. We're going to cover one verse today, and that's what I put in my notes. And then I thought, okay, we didn't get to the last part. We really didn't explain, I haven't explained what is the gospel of God. So we're going to cover part of a verse up to the gospel of God, even though we'll mention that. Uh, that'll give you some kind of idea how long we're going to be in the book of Romans. <laughs> but first. Uh, 1 of Romans chapter 1, this is how Paul introduces himself in the letter. In those days, they put their name first. You know, we get a letter in the mail, and we go to the end of the letter to see who signed it, or we look at the return address up on the envelope, and that's how we know. In those days, they said right up front, Paul, this is who it's from. Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called in as apostle, set apart for the gospel of John. Now, before we even hardly get into the book, application jumps out all over the place to us. You see, the question is not, who is Paul? That's not, that's not the question, because as we see here, right off the top, it blurts out at us. It's not who Paul is, but it's whose Paul is. The question is, who does Paul belong to? You see that in those three verses in the first phrases in the first verse, a bondservant of one that is bought by another, a called one of another, 
set apart one by another. There's somebody else in this verse, right? Paul looks like he's about what this verse is about, but this verse is not about, about Paul. It's not about him. There's the one who bought him, the one who called him, the one who set him apart. Someone is lurking behind the scenes in this man. Now, in our society and culture in these days, it's all about identity, right? Who you are, what you do, your abilities, your strengths, your talents, whatever you want to do in life. Who am I? Who am I? Everybody wants to know who, who ourselves, who, who am I? And then we express ourselves through that. I remember in Kansas City, I don't know if it was graffiti or if it was purposeful, but on the side of one of the grocery stores, they had painted the, the side of the grocery store black, and then in white letters that really stood out, it said, I am somebody. <laughs> Just crying out for I, I don't know what. But the big question in life is not who am I, but whose am I? In the 21st century, we get all bent out of shape about self-identity. How do you identify yourself? Racially, sexually, socially, economically, politically, religious, religiously? What is my self-esteem and, and uh, what is my value in all of that? What do others think of me and, and how do others offend me and why don't they let me be me? But when you read the Bible, the huge issue is right relationship with God. Right relationship with God. Whom you belong to, whose you are. So that is the big question that's hanging over this first verse. Phrase one, Paul is a bondservant of Jesus Christ, a slave of Jesus Christ. Now let's go back to first century Rome for a minute because in first century Rome, 50% of the population of the Roman Empire were slaves. Some were slaves as we normally think of slavery. They, they had been, their family or they had been made captive in war and those kind of things brought back to horrible slavery. Uh, there was bond servants. We'll talk about this in a little bit. But to the first century Roman ears, this was a shocking phrase. I am a bond servant of Jesus Christ. Why would you listen to a guy who followed a dead man who died in the grave and put in the grave 25 years ago? How can he be your master? Whoa, why would you be a slave to somebody who's dead? Wouldn't that free you? According to the Roman historian Tacitus and the Jewish historian Josephus, Christ was dead and buried and put in the tomb. How can, you be, how can Christ be master of anybody? Unless the person who's the slave is insane. You know, if you walked into your counselor's office and said, well, my great-great-grandpa... He's still my master. You go, you're off, man. That doesn't work. But Paul says here right off the top, he is my master, he is alive, and I am a slave to the living Jesus Christ. So you have to decide now, even as we begin the book, are these the ravings of a madman who believes people die and pop out of the grave three days later? Is Paul crazy or possibly did it happen? And we're only into the first six verses of Romans, or first six words of Romans. I like a phrase we used to back, use back in the 60s. I tried one this morning and it didn't go very good, so we'll see how this one goes because uh, all these bald guys were standing, in, uh, standing out in the hall and, and Steve said, wow, we're just 
you know, I can't remember what he said. And I looked at him and said, you're really in. And he didn't know, remember what that meant. <laughs> remember that in the 60s? If you were in, you were really cool. You were just in the in group. You were in the cool group. And another phrase we used back then, that's really real, man. That's real. Remember that? And we're talking about reality here because Christ and his resurrection is real. That's what's real. And everything else that people propose and live by, that, that's unreality. In fact, Paul was a double slave. He belonged to Christ by way of creation because God had created him. Paul belonged to God. And Paul belonged to Christ because he had been bought by Christ off the auction block of, of sin. A bond slave in those days, or a bond servant, was somebody who was bonded to another because a person would find themselves in a position that they owed a debt that they could never pay. No way they could ever pay that debt. And so they sold themselves to the master. The master would pay off the debt, and then they owed everything that they are, everything that they have. Their entire family was brought into bond slavery, and they completely and totally then belonged to the one who could hold the debt, debt over them. So you didn't belong to you at all. And, of course, you were only uh, a slave until you could pay off the debt. How well do slaves pay off debts? You know, in the history of our country, a few slaves were able to buy their freedom, but I don't know how, how they could do that. And so, so Paul was a bondservant of Jesus Christ. Turn over to the book of 1 Corinthians for a minute, Paul's letter, first letter to the Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 at verse 19. Because here we see how Paul became a bond slave and how we also become bond slaves. Paul wrote to the Corinthians in chapter 6, beginning at verse 19. And he told the believers in Corinth, you don't belong to you. You don't belong to you. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19. Paul asked an important question. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own. Reality. Christian, you do not belong to you. Why not? Verse 20. For you have been bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body. Jesus Christ paid for you by his shed blood on the cross. You do not belong to you. If you believe in Jesus Christ, you belong to him who paid your sin debt. What does Paul mean when he says that he's a bondservant of Jesus Christ? He means that he is bought by, owned by, and ruled by Jesus Christ. To be ruled by Jesus Christ, it really means that you're not... You're no longer trying to please men. Remember, Jesus said, you cannot serve two masters. You cannot serve God and mammon, in that case, physical possessions, wealth, and all that. You can't serve them. But uh, Paul tells us in Galatians 1.10 that you cannot serve or please God and at the same time be a people pleaser and please other men and worry about what they think and try to do what they want you to do. Galatians 1.10, Paul says, for am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? Or if I'm striving to please men? 
if I were still trying to please men, I would not be a bond servant of Jesus Christ. Am I trying to please men? If I was still trying to please men, says Paul, I would not be a bond servant of Jesus Christ. But he says, I am a bond servant of Jesus Christ. Therefore, I don't give a rip about pleasing men. But there is one qualifier there. Because we see in Romans chapter 15, verse 2, you don't need to turn to it, where we are to please our neighbor for his good, to his edification, that we might glorify God. How do we please men? What is the appropriate way to please men under pleasing our Heavenly Father, pleasing Christ? We do good to other people, and that pleases them. We build them up, and that pleases them, because that is what pleases our Master, the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul, whose are you? I am a bondservant of Jesus Christ. So Paul's self-understanding and who he is is that he is bought and owned and ruled by Jesus Christ, a man who was killed as a criminal perhaps 25 years before Paul wrote this letter, and who Paul will say in verse 4, Romans chapter 1, was raised from the dead and is the absolute, unique Son of God in power. We are dealing with a man and his owner and ruler, that is God. Now this begins to explain why this is no ordinary letter. Second phrase, back to Romans chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle. Called as an apostle. A better rendering would be a called apostle. Paul's position of apostle was not his own doing. He did not volunteer for the position. He didn't put in his resume. He didn't try to get elected by fellow believers. He was divinely called by the Lord Jesus Christ himself. While Paul at that time was still called Saul, he was blinded. Remember that miraculous, miraculous encounter on the road to Damascus where the Lord Jesus appeared to him and he fell to the ground. And the Lord said to Ananias, who lived in Damascus, about Paul at the time, the Lord said to him, Paul, or Saul, is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and sons of Israel. Paul saw Jesus on the Damascus road, and there Jesus called him into his apostolic ministry. He says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 7 and 8, Jesus appeared to James and then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. Then Jesus said to him, For this purpose I have appeared to you, to appoint you a minister and a witness, not only to the things which you have seen, but also the things to which I will show to you. With this commission, Paul became one of the founders of Christianity. One of the founders of Christianity. Now Ephesians 2 says that the church has been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the chief cornerstone. This is where the church is built. So let me ask you a question. Where do we find the foundation of the apostles today? Where is that foundation? As an architect, I inspect lots of foundations. Where would I go to find the foundation of the apostles? The answer to that is what the early church called in, in Acts chapter 2, 
the teaching of the apostles. Remember that? They devoted themselves to the teaching of the apostles. So where do we find the teaching of the apostles today? Remember in kindergarten Sunday school class, they taught you that it's only two or three right answers. God, Jesus, or the Bible. <laughs> Remember that? <laughs> if we got that, we got it all. Where do we find the teaching of the apostles? The answer is we find it in the deposit of writings that they left behind for us to read in the Bible. We find the teaching of the apostles in, in scriptures. And among those apostolic writings, there is none like the letter to the Romans. It's simply the great biblical summary of the gospel of God. And therefore, preeminently, this is the foundation of the church with Christ as his cornerstone. Paul says that he is called as an apostle. He's a called apostle. So that the church, so that we, as we receive the book of Romans, it's not just the message of a man. Just because Paul was a genius and he was very intelligent, but it's of Christ. It's Christ's message. Romans is not great because it's the word of a man named Paul. It's great because it's the word of God. That's the significance of being called an apostle. And the last phrase in Romans 1, set apart for the gospel of God. Finally, Paul says that he's not only a bondservant of Jesus Christ and not only called as an apostle, but he's also set apart for the gospel of God. Now, when did that happen? When did Paul get set apart? Now, we might think it's the Damascus Road where God revealed himself to him. But in Galatians chapter 1, verse 15, Paul writes, God set me apart from my mother's womb. From my mother's womb. That means that before Paul was bought as a slave, before he was called on the Damascus Road, before he was born, God set him apart for the gospel of God. Which means that God did not look around and try to find, you know, post it on one of those things on the internet today where you can post the position you want and 10,000 billion job sites, you know, where people are applying for jobs all come together. Oh, I found my apostle. Before he was born, God set him apart for the gospel. God prepared Paul even from his mother's womb. Which is an astonishing thing when you realize the pathway from the womb that Paul had to make. The Damascus Road, his unbelief, his persecution of the church. What a long road before Paul became aware of what God was doing in his life. In this very first verse of Paul's letter to the Romans, we taste something of the magnitude of God's inscrutable, undescribable wisdom. In that first verse, we start to get a flavor. If you want to just turn over to chapter 11, verse 33 of, of Romans for a minute, because every once in a while, Paul just breaks out. You know, and this is one of the places where, why would God choose me? Why would he set me apart? Why would he call me to, to be an apostle to the Gentiles? And in verse 33, chapter 11, it's no wonder that Paul cries out, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable in his ways. God did not leave anything to chance in the foundation of the church through the writing 
of his called and set apart apostle. So verse 1 of Romans chapter 1 may look like it's about the author of the, the letter, but behind that phrase is somebody who is greater. God bought him by the death of his son. God called him to be an apostle and set him apart from before he was born, and he did it all, as Romans 1.1 says, for the gospel of God. Now next week we're going to look at the gospel of God. That's why I said we're not going to get through the first verse today. In other words, even in the first verse of Romans, we hear Romans chapter 11, verse 36. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory of the church. Amen. Leon Morris is exactly right when he says, God is the most important word in this epistle. Romans is a book about God. No topic is treated with anything like the frequency of God. Everything Paul touches in this letter, he relates to God. In our concern to understand what the apostle is saying about righteousness and justification and the like, we ought not to overlook his tremendous concentration on God. There is nothing like it elsewhere. Indeed, there isn't. That is why the epistle has had the effect it has through all these centuries. It is from God and through God and, and to God. He, God chose the author before he was born. He purchased his freedom by the death of his son. He called him to be an apostle. And then God gave him a gospel, the gospel of God himself. So God is at the bottom, he's at the top, and he's at the middle of everything that we read. You know, it is, I believe... Time for us to meet God in the book of Romans. I believe that God has chosen us. He has called us. He has set us apart for this very thing. And so what are my personal expectations as we pray and study this word together? It's no less than it was for Augustine, Luther, Wesley, Samuel Taylor Coleridge, Leon Morris. Who else did I mention this morning? John Piper as well as the vast magnitude of God's saints who have met with him in his word, the letter to the Romans. Every Sunday morning and every part of your own personal devotional life, you are going to meet with God in the book of Romans. So I, I'm just asking that you will pray with me that his word would run, that it would triumph in the salvation of many people to bring them to Jesus Christ for the building up of his church, the building up of Grace Baptist Church to the glory of his name. My prayer is that God will build his church here among us. My hope and expectations are, are nothing less. You know, there's a couple more handouts in your bulletin this morning I want you to, to be aware of. One of them has at the top the greatest lever, greatest lever, greatest letter ever written, Paul's letter to the Romans. Could you pull that one out for a minute? And as long as you're pulling stuff out, you can pull out the outline to the book of Romans. And, and I'm just going to read this and make a few comments. This morning we embark upon a study of the greatest letter, letter <laughs> I can't tell, I'll, I'll work on that before next week. The greatest letter ever written, Paul's letter to the Romans. The message of the letter is not one that we are to keep to ourselves. In fact, it's just the opposite. The message is the saving gospel of Jesus Christ 
and its transformational power. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as, faith, as it is written, but the righteous shall live by faith. We should not assume that people whom we know and love do not need this message. Whatever their church affiliation or lack of, their level of commitment to Christ or the spiritual condition of their souls, everyone is in need of the message of this great letter. To help you and to help you get the word out, as we study the letter to the Romans, as we go along, several resources will be made readily available as handouts for your use and to distribute to others. The audio of, each, audio of each message, along with handouts and resources, will be posted on our website at dynamicgrace.org. On the website, you'll find a link to the audio of each message, on which is posted on beholdinghisglory.podbean.com. Now, I ask two things of you. Pray that God's Holy Spirit will make us and make others receptive to God's message. And then number two, be an inviting people. You know, every church that is growing, every church that is thriving is because that church is an inviting church. Inviting them for what is going on and what is being said and for God's word here at Grace Baptist Church. We want people to know him and hear God the way we know and hear God. And that's worth getting the word out. Get the word out. And so as we go along, there's going to be many resources and handouts and other things that you can use to give to others and use for your own personal Bible study. And one of those, I want you to tuck the, the outline to Romans into your Bible. It's put on heavy paper so I know you won't wear it out before we get to the book of Romans. But you still might. <laughs> because as you go through the book of Romans in your own reading, and I would encourage you to, to read ahead and read the entire book of Romans several times. If I was Martin Luther, William Tyndale, or John Wesley, I'd tell you to memorize the whole book, word for word. Okay? So it won't quite go that far. But it's just very helpful to see an outline and say, okay, verses 1 through 17 are an introduction. Paul does a greeting, he gives the theme, and on the way down, you know, you can follow that. And it will very much help, help your reading and understanding of the book of Romans. What a great journey we have before us. And uh, I'd encourage you to do reading on your own, studying on your own, and also pray that, that God will prepare our hearts and the hearts of others whom we will invite to meet God and experience his gospel in this all-important book. Shall we pray? Father, we're beginning an exciting journey this morning. It's going to be a long journey, I'm sure, but uh, there is going to be so much excitement and encouragement along the ways, Father. And You're going to do a work in each one of our hearts and our lives, and you're going to do a work in the lives of others whom we know and come in contact with, Father. And uh, as I said, my hope and prayer is, is none less than Augustine, Luther, and Wesley and uh, the many multitudes who have been so greatly touched and blessed by this, your holy word, as we read it in the book of Romans. Father, we do thank you for this book. And we don't thank you for who we are, but we thank you for whose we are. 
We are bond servants of the living Christ. We are called to be your saints, and we are set apart for the work that you have called each one of us to do. And for this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.